Scott Squared and Emily the Embellisher bringing you yet another mediocre ski podcast where we not only welcome you into our ski fam, but we bring the ski fam experience to you. A fun, laid back, and informational approach to the ski and snowboard community that you're going to love whether you've skied once, twice, or are the best skier on the mountain. But don't get too excited, we're still better than you. Whether you're on the early morning drive, carving up your favorite trail, we're about to send it off a gnarly jump, listen in for some fast facts and a possible laugh. So friends, lower that chairlift bar, keep your tips up, and get ready for some ski speak. You're still here? G- guys, guys, they're still here. Yay! Whoa, wow. <laughs> we we <laughs> didn't back. lose you. <laughs> what good fans we have. <laughs> I know, you guys are the best. Well, welcome to Ski Speak. I'm Emily, a.k.a. Big Air Archer, and you're here for episode three, our Snowvid Economy episode. I am Scott Hot Brown Honey. And this is Tardif, a.k.a. Tardigrade. So since we're a few episodes in, we've started to hear some feedback. Yeah, basically, you've all said that we're absolutely incredible and the best thing that you ever heard. Yeah, I don't know about that. Each one of us has something that we're hoping to work out, but that's fine. Nothing a little time can't fix. So thanks for sticking with us. Honestly, my favorite feedback so far that I've received is from my brother, Shout out to Jeff. Uh, He listens to all of our episodes and he said right away, oh yeah, I love that Scott guy. He sounds like he's been doing this forever. (laughs) And Emily, Emily, you sound great. And then you, meaning me, you sound like you should be a guest. (laughs) You should just be the guy who (laughs) drinks a beer and comes in and makes a few comments, but that's it. Your voice sucks. (laughs) So... Sorry, well, basically, guys. you're the snowboarder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. You're fitting the role very well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I got a lot of feedback from episode two, and I think the general gist was that it was a little bit long. And we understand that. It was heavy on information. It was a lot of speculation, but it was also a timely episode. We're going through it right now. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll just start with a quick episode two summary and provide a little bit of updates on what's happened since then. It's been a little bit of time. I think one of the advantages we have now is that mountains based in the U.S. have opened and we've been able to see how things are going. And the first one that I saw some feedback from was Keystone over in Colorado. Initially, someone came out and said the base area when they first went was really subdued, darkened storefronts and a lot of blocked off lockers. Jeez, that sounds apocalyptic, like The Walking Dead or something, everything being closed. The Walking Dead Again, of the, the Ski World. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to Keystone, but I expect it's not like The Walking Dead and that that this is not (laughs) typical as well. (laughs) God, I hope not. But good tie into the skiing zombies. I like it. I like it. If you listened to the blooper last episode, you know exactly what we're talking about. If not, you're very confused, but go back and listen. It's worth it. Listen all the way to the end. Yes, worth it. Yeah, yeah. Another example is Killington. When they opened for day tickets, it was through a touchless kiosk. So that's one initial change that people have seen. How does that work? In my head, I'm like, is it just mind control? Which I assume that Killington doesn't have that technology. They may not have that technology yet, but it's coming. (laughs) 
It's probably similar to the menus in restaurants right now, like where you can take a picture and a QR code pops up. Ooh. So it's probably using that technology of some sort. All of it's better than interacting and waiting in line. Because <laughs> so. who wants to do that? <laughs> Interact yeah. with people. Highly overrated. Exactly. <laughs> but there was a lot of other feedback out there about people wearing masks. There really haven't been any complaints. I think people are just really eager to get out there. But one of the more interesting things that I heard from Killington is a lot of people were bringing chairs from home and just pulling them out of their cars around lunchtime and eating in the parking lot. And the mountain itself, it's encouraging people to treat your car like a base lodge, which is something really interesting. It sounds kind of fun, except for the whole walking to the car thing from the mountain. (laughs) It sounds like my worst nightmare. Second note, my boots are way easier to walk in than your boots. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah, Fuck that. I do not want to walk in ski boots. It's already miserable as it is. (laughs) Unless it's like Mount Snow where they have a really nice setup where cars are like right at the base and then you can tailgate there. But I don't imagine the parking situation being all that great, which actually is a great transition. Mount Hood, they originally started with a ticket reservation, but they recently transferred over to a first come first serve parking. I'd be curious to know what ways they actually look at it and how they've looked at the availability or the capacity that they can actually have. Is it four people per car? Is it one person per car? You know, that can have a big difference on the amount of numbers. One of the things that I did see negatively from the initial opening was at Keystone, the person who had written the article had mentioned that they weren't able to get the entire weekend booked off. I think they arrived on Thursday, got right off the plane, went to the mountain to reserve, and only got Friday. They weren't able to get Saturday and Sunday. So there are some situations where the reservation system is already limiting people. And I think that's expected, but seeing it right off the bat like that makes you wonder how effective it'll be. So maybe that's why they're doing this transition to the parking lot system. Yeah. And you said that that was somebody else's experience. Well, we've actually had our own experience with the reservation system. At this point, the three of us, we have Epic Passes. So when we were first getting our priority reservations, which are those seven days that you can reserve more than a week in advance, there was about an hour wait before you could actually make your reservation. Emily logged in about 45 minutes after I did, but she ended up ahead of me in line, which is some big ass bullshit, (laughs) if you ask me. (laughs) Ladies first. (laughs) Chivalry isn't dead. (laughs) First come, first serve. And and then eventually when the reservations actually opened, it took me about 45 minutes to make them. Yeah, the whole system was a bit archaic. I was thinking that it would be a little bit better, a little bit more streamlined. Yeah, and I had a somewhat similar but also different experience, right? I had to wait in line for a bit, but I got all seven of my reservations right away, and I was in and out in five minutes. Yeah, the system's a a bit clunky. (laughs) Sorry, Sorry, that was just on the side. Word of the day. Since starting this whole reservation system, they've actually made a few changes. So we made our first week of reservations and they tell you to cancel before midnight the day you're going skiing, but we were able to cancel at 7.30 a.m. one day. Yeah. Another change that Vale has made is originally it was starting on Wednesdays, you could reserve your week of reservation for the entire next week. So all the way up until the following Tuesday, but they've since made it a rolling reservation. So if you're looking to book on Sunday, you can book all the way until the following Saturday. Oh, that's awesome. So you don't have to wait for all of it to come out at once. Yeah, so that should be a little bit easier. Great. And Vale has also come out and said that if you abuse the cancellations, so if you cancel too much, they could take away your past privileges. 
Yeah, like even this weekend, it's predicted to rain. We've made our reservations, but we're just waiting to see how it unfolds. That will be another notch in our reservation system. Who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah, they're going to cut us off before we even go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You canceled too many times. Well, Vale, I promise you it's not because I'm being a flake. It's because the weather just simply doesn't allow us to go. Yeah, I think it's interesting on the point of weather. It used to just be if there was crappy weather, you just didn't go. Or if you went and you couldn't ski, you were just SOL. And now with the reservation system, if it happens for weather, they'll just say you abused it. You canceled like three times in a row, right? It's, it's weird how subjective it is. Yeah. And I think one other... Go like ahead. I wonder... Oh, I was just going to say, I wonder if they'll take into account how many passes you've purchased in previous years. Yeah, no, I doubt that. <laughs> Definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fine then, I guess my speculation was called to shit. Terrible yeah, analysis. Do you even know corporate America, Emily? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Another component to all of this is the insurance, and this has slightly changed as it's gone on and we've gotten into the start of the season. I personally don't know that I completely understand it still. (laughs) I work in insurance, and it's still a little bit confusing. It's probably meant to be ambiguous to some extent, but I think the bottom line is that if certain situations were to occur, they quote-unquote promised refunds, but I think the likelihood of actually getting money back for them, it's fairly low. I'm just chalking it up to they're trying to protect themselves as best as possible so that they can keep whatever money that they've been able to get. Oh, now you're skeptical of corporate America. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always skeptical. I was just wondering if they would take into account the people that's giving them money for the past umpteen years. Anyway, this was a very long-winded way of saying that there have been some updates and that we have made some speculations over the past episode. And we know that you have a lot probably to share. So you've probably been on the mountain or have gone through this. So please let us know. Ski, speak, pod. Honest to God, that's the hardest thing to say. Ski, speak, pod. So anyways, those operational shifts, they end up having economic impacts. They really just go hand in hand. And so let's take a big ol' swan dive into the economics of skiing during a pandemic for episode three. Money, 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 money. Money. <laughs> money. <laughs> cool. So let's take a look at the big picture. First, we'll start with the passes. The Icon and the Epic Pass did two things differently this season. First, they extended the promotional value of their season passes through the early fall. They also provided a discount or an incentive program. So if you had a pass last season and didn't get the most out of your pass, you got a percentage off that you could then put towards this 2021 season. If we are then to take a look at some independently owned mountains, we can look at Mad River Glen who were selling passes throughout the summer and ultimately had to pause pass sales in the fall because they were so successful. And then finally, we can take a look at Bolton Valley. They invested $100,000 in their online infrastructure. They're now going to see a 60% shift from in-person sales to online ticket sales or pass sales because of this. They're also looking to upgrade different infrastructures as well. But did they put any money towards touchless kiosks? Mind control. (laughs) That I'm not sure. So to bring it back to Vail, <laughs> their info is publicly available because they're a publicly traded company. 
uh, Vale has sold 18% more pass units so far. They've made 4% less money, and that's probably because of that discount that they provided everyone, but they've sold more passes this year. They were really trying to find a way to get guaranteed money without having to think about the uncertainty of the season. Yeah, money now is better than money later. Yeah, less money now, better than maybe money later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even even on top of that, just because you have a season pass, it doesn't guarantee a normal season. You're going to face a lot of differences that we've talked about last episode and kind of speculated on already. You might have a capacity limit. There will be no lodges. You don't have the ability to go when you want like you have in the past. So we're just going to have to deal with what's going on with this season. Yeah. So their gain is kind of our loss, but you know, we're supporting every worker there because regardless of how they make their money, they need to operate in some sort of capacity. And that means they need workers. They need employees. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that we've noticed is that there are a lot of foreign workers that come and work at these mountains. And back in June, President Trump actually put out an executive order freezing some federal foreign visa programs. And this was done in an effort to promote job opportunities for Americans, given the ridiculous levels of unemployment that we saw. And there's about 7,000 international seasonal workers that count for about 5 to 10% of the seasonal workforce. Yeah, I would have expected that to be a little bit more, but that's just because I like to look at people's name tags, which has where they're from. So I would have expected more, but maybe 5 to 10% sounds right. Yeah, I mean, they could be just the ones that are working outside clicking our tags. So like we see more of the front facing ones. Yeah, that's very true. General thought about it, too, is that this ban could be reversed by Biden when he takes office in January. Yeah, Woo-hoo! exactly. <laughs> well, hopefully welcome back, workers. It'll be great to chat with you again. But I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. Like, first, like, do we really think that these international workers are going to travel to the United States specifically to work at one of the mountains? Because Biden won't come in until mid-January. Any changes will be made not until mid-February, and then there's only a month left. So that's the first thing. They probably won't come. So those jobs are probably still secured in some sort of way for fellow Americans <laughs> um, or USA people. <laughs> I I think you're right, Emily. I think they have a very limited time to come over. In addition to that, we have no idea what he's going to do. He, of course, has a very different approach when it comes to COVID and whether that means stay-at-home orders across the country, mandatory curfews like we saw in New York in the very beginning of COVID, uh, which could not only halt the economy, but also prevent people like us who are hoping to do a road trip out west from being able to do that. Honestly, I'm willing to sacrifice my beloved potential ski trip cross country for something that provides a little bit more stability for people. While Biden may be taking office and things may be different, that hasn't happened yet and won't happen as for a little bit. The ski resorts here still did need to make alternative recruiting plans. There's still a strong demand to be out on the slopes that we've seen. And what it ended up meaning is that there was an uptick in job applications from younger people or those people who didn't have to cross international borders, you know, these so-called fellow Americans, as Emily says. Yeah, some are college students and high school graduates who are deferring school for a year or just taking online classes. These could also be recent grads or, in general, people who are out of work. There's a a lot of those right now. This whole industry and the seasonality of it could actually be a benefit and help the unemployment numbers. 
Yeah, and it's been really bad. Vermont and all of the major ski towns were very much affected by unemployment. So for example, Stowe, Ludlow, Londonbury with Magic Mountain, all of these reported over 16%. I think you meant Londonderry. Yeah, I think you said London, London Berry. <laughs> Berry? <laughs> your, your bathroom badger? Oh, man. Uh, thus is me. <laughs> anyway, just to wrap that thought up, um, Dover uh, also topped the list at 25.5% in June, which is crazy because the previous year it had 5.2%. As a whole, Vermont is actually doing one of the best in the country. But in general, those tourism or ski towns have a worse unemployment, even adjusted for seasonality. Yeah, it's definitely still worse than last year, but things are getting better relative to what they were in June. And Dover was 25%, and right now, or as of October, I guess I should say, it's at about 7%. But that's still, compared to 2019, it was 1.8%. So that's still way high relative. And all of the other ski towns, the infamous Londonbury, Stowe, Ludlow, <laughs> they're, they're all a, under 5%. But that's still double all of their 2019 numbers. So they're still being pretty strongly affected by the pandemic. And in addition to that, mountains are also going to be needing to make smaller operational changes, which will also be affecting the day-to-day -day bottom line. So... One of those smaller operational changes is dining. And we mentioned that in episode two, it will be very different. The three of us here, we think that the places that are gonna be more successful are gonna be the ones that have more creative solutions and can adapt to outdoor dining. One of those more creative solutions that I mentioned in episode two was the Telluride gondolas, how they were pulling gondola cabins out and using that as a method of outdoor dining. And actually, a little bit after we released the episode, I was on Instagram and actually saw they posted a picture of it, and it looks so cool. It's really awesome. Go check it out if you haven't. It's so cool. You can see the gondolas out in like the main base area, out where, I don't know, normally there'd be nothing. They just like have the gondola. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> I forgot that last time too. <laughs> yeah, you did the same thing. <laughs> so in the village, they have these amazing gondola cars where you can dine. I just want to shout out that trail break up in White River Junction, Vermont. They did it first. They have had an old Killington gondola out there that you can eat in for a couple years now. So shout out to them. Ooh. But one of the things that could impact these creative solutions is whether or not states are even allowing dining at all. If some are allowing a small capacity inside, are they going to stick to just that and not even think about these creative solutions? Yeah, I was actually talking to my friend Tasha the other day. Shout out, Tasha. And she was at Mount Snow recently and said that they're doing reservations for the lodges. So you can pick your lunch time and you can have a socially distanced table. And I think you have like a certain amount of time to eat there. And what this does, it allows you to not only use the lodge, but it maximizes their space. And then it does allow a certain amount of income. It's not as large as what their previous years have looked like, but at least it will hopefully keep these mountains afloat. And even with the restaurants, it is inherently connected to the hospitality industry, right? And that, of course, links to lodges and hotels and people going and traveling to these places. Having a decrease in people staying over, there's probably not going to be as many people eating at restaurants. On the note of hotels and lodges, one of the things that I looked at in Vermont specifically is a couple weeks ago, even under their reduced capacities, they were confident in their bookings and they were filling up to the extent they could. But when Vermont tightened their restrictions, this led to a lot of cancellations. 
And the sector was already hit pretty hard in the spring when it had to lay off about 65% of its staff. And most of these places continue to operate at a bare bones level. Yeah. Anecdotally, Emily and I, we actually stayed at a hotel back in October and it was literally the same guy working from when we checked in at like 8 p.m. to 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. when we were leaving. He was still working. <laughs> and that's crazy. That poor guy. I think it's because of things like that. These hotels are seeing revenues down 75% year over year. And there's going to be further economic impacts, not just in these specific industries of dining hotels or I guess hospitality, but there will be impacts felt on the state of Vermont as a whole. What's actually really staggering is that this is a really tiny state. It actually brings in $1.6 billion on ski season visitors every year. And Vermont actually brings in almost as many skiers as Utah in a season. Nearly 4 million people go to Vermont just to ski. So that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was Emily's mind-blowing. Everyone couldn't see it. <laughs> that's crazy, yeah. though. Like, wow, go Vermont. Which makes me wonder, just to keep up with the times, these smaller mountains like Bolton Valley are going to need to be adopting things that these bigger mountains already have, such as buying tickets online for Bolton Valley. That was a huge identity change, which I think is a huge loss because um, you're losing that like personal connection. And especially with these smaller mountains, that's where they thrive. There's a lot of people that are kind of stuck in their tried and true ski ways. And I hope that those kind of changes don't keep them away, that the ability to ski and the desire to ski will overcome the annoyance of an online reservation system. The changes that they're making will probably stick. You wouldn't invest that much money or that much time and to really focus and make sure that you're prepped for ski season unless you were hoping that it would be for the long run, or at least that's what I would anticipate. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of these things are happening in Vermont, but this also applies to a lot of the larger states. And for example, Colorado, they have some of the largest and most visited ski mountains. You would expect those impacts to be greater given the size, and they're also less restrictive with out-of-state tourism into the state right now. So you got to weigh a couple of different factors here. Yeah, definitely. But even still, if we were to take it even bigger, like looking at Whistler, for example, it's the biggest mountain in North America. So if Colorado is starting to feel something, Canada will definitely be needing to look at some things as well. Yeah, Whistler, Blackcomb, it's the most traveled to mountain in North America. And Canada, they have non-discretionary travel restrictions. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? A quick fun fact <laughs> is that like around March 15th or so, non-discretionary travel was the most Googled search term because nobody knew what it meant and everyone still wanted to go travel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what is it? Non-discretionary travel, it has to be for a purpose like work or school or something that's required. Discretionary travel would just be any of our vacations that we take. So you can't go to Whistler basically for just a vacation. I wonder if it was a work from home situation, like in Europe, you're starting to see a lot of people go to the Swiss Alps from the UK and work from home there. I'm really curious whether you could say I'm working and this is a work trip and then go and camp out at Whistler. I don't know. Right? <laughs> That's a really good question. Yeah. yeah. Probably. I'm sure it depends on how much they're actually checking that kind of thing, right? And it's probably not enough. If you're willing to go to Whistler, dish out whatever money to stay there for X amount of time, then I don't think there's anything saying you can't. Yeah. So bringing it back to the east coast of Canada, 
Tremblant, a mountain outside of Montreal, they have a lot of visitors from the Northeast area going up there. They're not really going to get that. And to reverse the situation, Jay Peak is right on the border of Vermont, and they get a lot of visitors from Canada. There is a known contribution from Canada on the East Coast for people coming down into Vermont. That'll be an impact that they'll have to feel given that the borders are shut down in both directions. Both, both countries will be impacted either way. And that's only one border between the U.S. and Canada. In Europe, they have way more borders and they have a lot of the popular ski destinations given that they're in the Alps. Seriously. So what's happening in Europe is really interesting. Basically, you have two teams. You have team one, that's Switzerland and Austria. And you have team two, that's Italy, France, and Germany. Switzerland and Austria are taking this operations as usual, of course, making some safety precautions. But at the same time, like the economy will be drastically affected if the ski season is canceled or delayed for any reason. In Austria, the industry generates $18 billion in revenue, and thousands of jobs are connected to different winter sport tourism industries there. So it really is one of the life and bloods of their economy. If the EU forces mountain closures during the season, interestingly enough, the Austrian government will actually back their ski industry business and demand some sort of billion dollars in relief to offset that loss that the business tree has suffered. Did you just glitch or did you just say business tree? <laughs> I swear you just said business and industry in one word. I think I just invented a new word, business tree. <laughs> so. Hell, I'll take it. <laughs> business tree. <laughs> <laughs> I think regardless, these two countries, Switzerland and Austria, they're advocating to be open, but this isn't exactly the case for all European countries. Not at all. So team two, uh, as a refresher, is Italy, France, and Germany. And Germany is really spearheading this entire, everybody needs to be on the same page. They're being the trailblazers here. They're advocating for the resorts to stay closed until mid-January, so around January 6th to 15th, somewhere around there. And when they sent out a poll, 74% said that, yes, this is the right decision, that all the ski resorts should be closed. 74%. That's nuts. <laughs> within, within this group of three people, it's really difficult to get 74% of people to agree on anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a math joke, guys. <laughs> You're so funny. So Italy... They're planning to shut down inter-region travel from December 21st to January 6th for discretionary travel. So they specifically note that you can't visit your second home outside of your local region. So if you can imagine, that also has an impact on the ski industry. Similar to Chile, how you couldn't cross over the regions. So if somebody was going to work there or travel to the uh, ski mountain, they needed to be within the region the ski mountain was in which posed a huge issue. Yeah, exactly. Just like Chile in the last episode. And if you guys remember, Italy had so many COVID issues when all of this started back in February, March or so. They were one of the most impacted countries. Yeah, I mean, so many COVID issues almost feels like an understatement for how bad it really got there. Yeah. So a lot of these restrictions are because of those issues that they had. They really are trying to take care of their citizens. Mm -hmm. 
On the flip side, corporate Italy, ski <laughs> resorts are predicting to lose about 60% of their annual revenue. And that's because that's how, how much money comes in during the Christmas New Year's period. Some places are actually trying to take a more hybrid approach and not completely shut everything down. For example, France, they've closed their chairlifts and are, are trying to prevent downhill skiing, but they have come out and said you can enjoy other forms of the snow, cross-country skiing, one of them. In the end, you can always earn your turns and hike up the mountain to get some skiing in if you really wanted to. They're not completely taking away your ability to be on the mountain in some capacity. It's really creative. You know, as I just think about like Europe as a whole, even if the mountains were to stay open in Austria, for example, or in Switzerland, like will people from the UK or the Netherlands or Germany who's advocating for the mountains to be closed, they probably won't be traveling to these other destinations, which is most likely where bulk of the money is coming from. There still is going to be economic repercussions. And one last side note, like it's also interesting to me because many of the mountains aren't found in Germany. So Germany is the one spearheading the idea that Europe should be on the same page, but they're not going to feel the economic impact as much as a Switzerland or an Austria would. Interesting side note. And speaking of borders and all of these border challenges, as Emily alluded to, well, a kind of crazier concept is when one ski resort crosses that international border and exists in more than one country. That's like so crazy. Like huge ass mountains going over borders. Hey, you didn't say little. I didn't. You're right. Yeah, they, Emily, they don't have to be ass mountains. They're just mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It is interesting to have this this concept. We don't have this here in the U.S. And how do you manage it? And just to give you a couple of examples, Ischgl, our favorite friend pandemic hotspot, it's on the border of Austria and Switzerland. But those two countries, as we mentioned, are somewhat on the same page. Whereas Zermatt, that's on the border of Switzerland and Italy. Well, those two countries kind of had differing opinions right now. There's so many other examples, but, you know, that's just a few. But overall, it will be really interesting to see the economic impact that this has. The economies of these countries heavily rely on the ski industry, but this is also true in the U.S. as well. Yeah, so in the U.S., it's a huge industry. Huge. <laughs> um, so some stats from our friends over at the NSAA, which is the National Ski Areas Association. The ski industry in the U.S., it's a $55 billion industry. That includes retail we employ about 530,000 jobs in the sector. Throughout the U.S., these ski mountains tend to be the local economic drivers in rural areas. And 80%, just making up numbers, 89% of the revenue generated for these ski mountains is during the winter. So that's a lot of money over average ski season of 81 to 114 days. I honestly never realized how huge of an industry this was. Like, it's incredible just thinking about, like, the impact that the winter, this one portion of winter sports season can have and how complicated it's getting because of COVID-19. And we're talking a lot about the general contribution that the ski industry has had and going to speculate a little bit more about what we think this season will bring. But there was already impacts felt at the end of last season when everything shut down at the end of March. The industry experienced major losses. $2 billion. 
Yeah. So taking it to our big friend, Vale lost about $300 million in revenue compared to the last fiscal year. However, they have about $280 million more in cash on hand. Yeah, I read that they have enough in their reserves to be sustained until the end of 2022. And they also already announced a capital plan for this year in response to COVID-19. Basically, they'll really only spend their money on necessary things like maintenance or making their resorts safe. Hmm. Rather than spend money on comfier upgrades, they'll push those out to the following year. And although it's not publicly documented, you would expect this reduction in capital spending with other larger mountains, such as the Altera, Boyne, or Pattercorp companies. Interesting. Yeah, like Emily said, Vail is large enough to withstand this, and it comes down more to the safety aspect, where that is necessitating the need to close and to intentionally lose money in some cases. Yeah. It's a matter of, like, strategically spending the money, which is interesting. It's like, where are they going to put their money? Like, they need to put it, they have money, they need to put it somewhere, so what are they going to do with it? Yeah, and we also can give you a case study to compare to. We had a similar economic recession, which was the 2008-2009 recession. Interestingly enough, in 2009, ski resort revenue overall as a whole increased about 2.3% from the previous year. Yeah, and I think that comes a little bit from the fact that it was very different. I don't think we'll see the same thing this year. Back in 2009, they didn't have travel restrictions or restrictions on restaurants, bars, and lodging, and and those sorts of things. So it'll probably be a very different impact this year. Yeah, I think we're really looking at those impacts for 2022 at this point. Yeah, for sure. So we've speculated a lot throughout this episode, but let's uh, take a stance. Take a stance on me. So we should all take a stance. Fuck it. Who cares if we're wrong? Let's do it. Let's do it. I think that it's going to be a loss. I think we'll see an increase of people. (laughs) That's not very um, optimistic. (laughs) No, I think there's going to be a loss. I mean, I, I think that's inevitable for any or most industries unless, I don't know, you're something like else. But I think we're going to see a loss, but we're going to see an increase of new types of ski bombs. Um, we're going to see people maybe investing in properties or doing long-term rentals and working from home in that way. And we're going to see people traveling to different places and then staying put for extended periods of time. What's your stance, Scott? I, or sorry, what's your stance, Tardif? Ooh, are you talking to yourself or are you talking to me? What's your stance, Scott? Well, I don't know, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> we could just get in this weird infinite loop there. <laughs> but what's, what's your stance, Tardif? Also not optimistic, even though I just teased Emily. Some of my more bold predictions, I think some ski ski mountains, I think some ski mountains will shut down because of COVID for at least two weeks, but I don't think they'll be in states that are having more restrictions. So I don't think Vermont's necessarily going to see this because they're already restrictive, but you might all of a sudden see a a COVID hotspot in, I don't know, where we think in Idaho. Let's go Idaho, whatever. But I do think that at least three mountains will go out of business because of COVID-related financials. That could be Terry Peak, South Dakota. (laughs) Just kidding. But if one of them does go out of business, I think collectively we are planning on buying it. Ski Speak Mountain. 
Okay, I'm going to make it a solid three for three and predict that it's also going to be worse. I don't think that's really a question unless some positive things, vaccines or less cases, actually come to be within the next couple of weeks, I don't think they'll have any kind of impact. And there's probably already been enough impact that it's going to change the bottom line. But I think from a safety standpoint, there's going to be a big potential for outbreaks. And I think we will see some coming from these ski mountains. Even with the precautions and the restrictions, I think it's still possible to see mountains being these COVID hotspots. And that could really tank the reputation of a mountain if all of a sudden it's a COVID hotspot kind of ties into Tardif's prediction with mountains going out of business. So we've we've presented a lot of negative things. All of us have taken a negative stance, but there are some good things to come out of this. Yeah, I read an article. Um, The thought was that we'll move away from this somewhat pretentious ski environment and back into this more rugged, less luxurious side of things. One of the examples was there will be more parking lot fun. You know, we already said you won't have the lodges to sit in, to warm up in, and to eat your lunch. So you've got to eat outside, kind of like a tailgating community. Some of the other benefits could just be locals. They might actually support the mountains more. We see that sometimes people are supporting their restaurants more to keep it open during this time period. Um, I kind of call it the exceptional patronage phenomena where it's just over support compared to normal times. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing with COVID is just another, you know, curveball, of course, but the ski industry is resilient. And I know and I'm confident that with the changes that they're making in terms of public safety and adopting um, new precautions, that it's going to be fine. I don't think the ski industry is going anywhere either. And they're going to lose money. But like a lot of the rest of corporate America, they're going to be they're going to be totally okay. (laughs) Good buzzword. One of the other thoughts is that you may need to be in a singles line longer because of the lifts being slower. So my two wonderful co-hosts here have this awesome experience in the singles line. So I want to give you guys some airtime to kind of shout out to your love. What? All right. That's all we have today, folks. Ski fan. Thanks for listening. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I think it's time for us to move out of the episode. (laughs) We're glad you stayed with us. It's been awesome to have you and look forward to having you next episode. We promise it will be more lighthearted and a little bit more fun. That's that's it from us and tune in next time. You know, we'll see you again soon. Peace out, Ski Fam. Peace out. Deuces. <laughs> <laughs>be like kind of a a different age or a different wave of what a ski bum looks like coming into those areas (laughs) we're gonna be on our laptops on the chairlift (laughs) working (laughs) just throw the laptop in your backpack on the rundown but like hot spotting
Why not? Can you guys see my screen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like working from your phone. Like I, I, I can see it happening for sure. From your BlackBerry? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Sorry. And apparently this is something that's awesome. They used to sell hot dogs and coffee from carts since the lift lines were used to be so long with the slower lifts. Oh, so, my, God. oh my God. Waffle cabin, get on that with Hell a waffle yeah. cabin cart. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I want to go just for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't necessarily buy lunch, but if they were selling hot dogs and waffles in the parking lot, I might actually dish out some dough there. No, this is in the lift lines. So when you're standing oh. in line for an hour, you get to have a hot dog in the lift line. I'm all about that. I'm not surprised. Dude, laptop in one hand, hot dog in the other. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Now, if only it was corn dogs. <laughs> well that's what the waffle's for <laughs> yum oh i'm excited thanks for listening